Matthew chapter 28, we are ready to uh, bring to a conclusion our series through Matthew's gospel, and we're going to take two weeks in Matthew 28, and then, Lord willing, we will be done with that, ready to move on to Paul's letter to the Romans. But we'll do two weeks in Matthew 28, and we're really breaking it up into two headings or two sections here, the verses 1 through 15 is one section honing in on the resurrection of Christ or maybe more accurately and specifically the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. And, uh, and then in the uh, verses 16 through 20, of course, we have what's most commonly referred to as the Great Commission, but we'll look at it under the heading of responsibility or maybe even resurrection responsibility. Our response to the commission of the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll look more specifically at that probably last or next week. You know, really the ironic thing about this chapter, we call it a conclusion to Matthew's gospel, but it's really not a conclusion, is it? It's more of a beginning. That's even how it reads. The ending with the uh, commission is just that, a commission or a commencement now. Things are new now in Christ's authority. The new covenant has been established. The old covenant has been fulfilled in Christ. All of the law and the prophets that He Himself, back in Matthew 5, said were pointing to Him. He has now come. He has fulfilled those. He has died for our sins and now has been raised again from the dead and commissions his disciples out. It's a beginning. Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, he made a promise. I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And now in Matthew 28, we see the beginning of that promise fulfilled as the resurrected Christ gives to his Apostles, this directive to go into the nations and make disciples. And we find that he's going to build his church through his people. That's really how this is going to happen. This is just a beginning. It's not a conclusion of the gospel. The resurrection is not a conclusion to the gospel. It's just the beginning of all these new things. You know, Luke really caught on to that. And, uh, of course, he wrote the Gospel of Luke. So you had those 24 chapters, I think, devoted to the the life and death and teaching and resurrection of Christ. And then he wrote a second book to the same man, Theophilus, who he wrote the first one to, Acts. And this is how he begins that that book. Acts chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, it says, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Have you ever caught that? In the book of Luke, in the book of Matthew, in the book of John, in the book of Mark, this is just what Jesus began to do. In other words, he's continuing now his ministry in this world through his church, through his people. The Gospels were just the beginning. And Jesus is continuing on now this church-building mission. With that in mind, let's go ahead and read this chapter. Then we'll pray and ask God's blessing on it. And I'm going to talk about these resurrection appearances for a few minutes. 
Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. They came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. And while they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age." Let's just pause and ask God's blessing on this passage. Father, please now help us, guide us by your Spirit, give us uh, the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of yourself and of your Son. Open our eyes so that we can see wondrous things from your law. Teach us here now who you are and who we are to be in light of that. And may Jesus Christ, the risen Christ and Lord, be glorified among us in our hearts. May we worship him and rejoice with great joy at the fact that he is not dead, he is alive, interceding for us and close with us, as a matter of fact, dwelling in us through faith. And that is our hope of glory. Please help us to see these things. We depend upon you for that. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you were to read, beginning in Acts 1, and just read about the disciples beginning to obey the Great Commission, to go and proclaim the good news, you'll notice that they had the emphasis on not as much the cross, though that was an emphasis, but really the the main emphasis emphasis or thrust of their preaching was this, that, that Jesus was the Messiah we were waiting for. He was crucified for our sins, according to the scriptures. But more than that, he has been raised again. He is alive. This is what they were going about proclaiming, that he was alive. 
And people in Jesus' day, just as there are people now, many, many people, they hear that message and they just don't believe it. I just can't believe that he is alive from the dead. I don't believe that he is alive from the dead. Or as these religious leaders who helped concoct this uh, ridiculous story of the disciples stealing away, they just refuse to believe that Jesus is alive. Or if they do believe he's alive, it has no implication on them. They refuse to believe. And so what the, what the Gospel of Matthew does and the other Gospel writers is they present to you evidence... Evidence, in fact, that Jesus did rise from the dead. And there was evidence in it so that you were understanding that your faith is not just a blind leap in the dark. And you remember how we said you, you have to read these gospel records as historical narrative in part. We realize they're the written word of God, but these aren't myths or, or uh, things like that, legends or fables. This is accurate history. So the way to read Matthew's gospel is as accurate history, and he's presenting to you evidence of the fact that though Jesus had died, indeed was dead, was now alive, that God had raised him from the dead. And in Matthew 28, he presents two uh, points of evidence uh, uh, looking at that. The first is the empty tomb. See, if you remember back in chapter 27, he goes out of his way to describe how this happened. They, that Jesus died, they took his body, Pilate let them have his body, and this specific man, Joseph of Arimathea, had an actual, uh, actual burial tomb in which he requested to put Jesus, like they would have known in Matthew's day where that was. This was no mystery to them. This man was probably not uh, some mysterious figure to many of them. They knew him. They knew his name. That's why he's mentioned. And they took his body and, and they placed it in the tomb and they put this uh, huge stole, uh, stone in front of it to seal up the tomb to keep anybody from getting in there. And they got a guard placed in front of it. So the empty tomb then was a real problem for the critics of his day as well as ours. I mean, think about this. If, if those apostles went about preaching that Jesus was alive and the religious leaders knew where this Joseph's tomb was and where he was buried, uh, couldn't they just very easily go to the tomb, present the body of Jesus and say, now quit telling people this. Look, everybody, here's the body of Jesus. And the problem is they couldn't do that because the body of Jesus was no longer there because he had risen from the dead, and so they had to make up this ridiculous story of these, frankly, pre-spirit and dwelt, bumbling disciples who had all abandoned him on the night of his crucifixion, had no idea what was going on. Peter even denied him because he was so frustrated and angry and confused at what was happening. Those same disciples go in in the middle of the night perform some SEAL Team 6 extraction behind the eyes of sleeping guards, roll away the tomb and steal the body. It's a ridiculous story. The empty tomb presented a real problem for the critics of Matthew's day as well as ours. You remember even just a couple of decades ago, I don't remember exactly how long it is, I remember watching a TV documentary special and they really hyped this up. I don't know if you remember this. They thought they found the tomb of Jesus. So they had their camera crews and their going through it and they're going into this tomb and of course it wasn't and they didn't find any body of Jesus or any evidence that he was there but they know that if they could find a body then Christianity crumbles that's the idea the empty tomb has always 
presented a problem right from the very beginning. And so Matthew reiterates the fact that the tomb was empty and even sent these women, the first witnesses really to this, go look in the tomb where he lay. You'll see he's not there. And then John's account, we have Peter and John running to the tomb. And what do they do? They look in the tomb. He's not there. It's because, of course, he rose from the dead as, as the angel told them, just as he said he was going to. Three times he told his disciples, he said, we're going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be crucified, but on the third day I will rise again. And behold, that's exactly what has happened. And then he presents, of course, eyewitness accounts. We tend to diminish that these days and we tend to say, well, maybe they just all made it up. Do you know in Matthew 28 alone you have, first of all, these eyewitnesses. Now, remember, nobody saw, nobody was an eyewitness to the actual resurrection. They were an eyewitness to the resurrected Jesus who appeared to them in bodily form, John's gospel. They ate with him, so he's still human. They're not seeing a a ghost or a phantom. He was an actual human being. They were able to see the imprints of the nails in his hand and the the scar on his side. They saw this, right? These were eyewitness accounts. And in Matthew's gospel, in chapter 28, you have the two Marys mentioned. You have Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. They see Jesus. Of course, they worship him and hold on to him. That's part of what he's explaining, that this was a real person that they were seeing. And then you have the, at least the 11 disciples meeting him in Galilee, and Jesus, of course, uh, appears to them. That's 13 eyewitnesses in one chapter. Having somewhat of a past in law enforcement, I can tell you this. If you had 13 eyewitnesses to one event, you've got a pretty sealed case. If you have one, you've got a case. If you've got two, it's really getting good, right? And even under Jewish law, you needed two to three witnesses to establish a fact. Well, in Matthew's gospel alone, you have 13. But the New Testament doesn't end there, does it? In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, when Paul wants to describe the gospel, listen to what he says. He says this, For I delivered, and this is 1 Corinthians 15 verse 3, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Now let's just stop right there. Oftentimes when we're proclaiming the Gospel to people or sharing the Gospel, we stop right there. Well, yeah, we we believe that Jesus uh, lived and He died and He was buried and He rose again. And we end the Gospel there. But it doesn't really end there. Like if Paul's going to present a full, faithful exposition of the gospel, it goes further than that, doesn't it? He says this, And that, verse 5, he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom, Paul says, are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. In other words, it was Jesus died for our sins, was buried, rose again, and then appeared to a whole bunch of people who saw him. And Paul says there was one account where there were over 500 brothers, and he uses that term brothers specifically to show you they were Christians to that day who would bear testimony. He said, most of them are still alive. If you don't believe me, 
then go track down one of those 500 people and ask them. If you don't believe uh, Peter, if you don't believe James, if you don't believe the other apostles, if you don't believe uh, the women, uh, find one of these 500 brothers that saw him. What a risk Paul would be taking if he was making this all up. To put down, like almost daring people, to challenge them on this and find one of them. If you could find 500 people that would say, oh yeah, I saw him. He, he appeared to us. He talked to us. This is what he did. We saw 500 people over and over again. It would kind of bolster, would it not? Bolster your faith. This is why it's all part of the gospel, that he rose again and a whole bunch of people have seen him. They were evidence. They, they were uh, witnesses to the Christ and that is evidence for the resurrection. We could go into other things, obviously, uh, evidences that we won't, but as an example, the fact that the uh, disciples' lives were changed or Saul of Tarsus becoming, becoming better known by his Greek name Paul now, going and proclaiming this gospel to the Gentiles whom he would have despised before in opposition to all of his Jewish brethren and the uh, Pharisaic tradition in which he grew up in. You can think about the fact that all of these men, none of them profited off of preaching Christ. As a matter of fact, they were all persecuted for preaching Christ. And history will teach us that. We're told in historically that uh, church history says that Peter was crucified for proclaiming the risen Christ upside down after having watched his wife be crucified. Now what kind of lunatic would you have to be to be maintaining this preaching about a resurrected Christ and endure that? That Paul was beheaded under the emperor uh, Nero's orders. And the list goes on and on. There is evidence, plenty of evidence for the resurrection of Christ. Understand, friends, it's not a blind leap in the dark. We can believe this because it's true and there's enough witnesses and, and testimony and evidence to show us that. Okay, so that's analyzing the resurrection. We're learning to read Matthew's gospel better and maybe the other ones as well. And we're looking at the resurrection. We look at it in terms of he's presenting to us evidence, okay? But I want you to think of some terms when you're reading through these passages. The first one is this. I want you to understand that when you're reading these passages on the appearance of Jesus and the resurrection of Christ, you're seeing resurrection victory has been accomplished. Think of that word victory in connection to the resurrection. Jesus was victorious over sin and death in the resurrection. Sin has been conquered as well as death because Christ has been raised from the dead. Think about it in terms of the sin first, the victory over sin. The resurrection demonstrated that the sacrifice of Christ for our sins was sufficient. We went out of our way to talk about the sufferings of Christ being He there in our place, paying for our sins. And now we see Him raised from the dead by God Himself, demonstrating that what He had done for our sins is sufficient. So that we can believe now that we have the forgiveness of sin. Christ defeated sin in the cross and in the resurrection. As a matter of fact, if Jesus had stayed dead, friends, that would have been nothing more than an indication that he himself was a sinner and bore the penalty of sin like every other sinner. And you and I would still be liable for our sins. 
You know, Paul says as much in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 17. He says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. If Christ is dead and in a tomb, your faith is a waste of your time and there is no forgiveness of sin. The sacrifice was not accepted, in other words. But we know it was accepted because Christ has been raised. That's why in Romans 4.25 he said this, He was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. You know, it's interesting that Graham read that earlier. It impacted me uh, where Jesus with that paralytic, first thing he says to him, your sins are forgiven you. Okay? Now think this through because everyone around him got mad at him for saying that because I was blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. But he said, your sins are forgiven you. And my heart was warm because I was thinking of Jesus saying that to me. And the whole Bible says that to me. Your sins are forgiven you. Jesus forgives me of my sins. My heart was warm. But let me, let me ask you this. We can take comfort in that because he's alive. But what if he were saying things like that and then he just died? Do you trust in a dead man whose corpse had rotted in a tomb thousands of miles from you that your sins before God are forgiven? No. But because he's alive, because God raised him from the dead, now we know he has the authority on earth to forgive sins. And the forgiveness of sins can be proclaimed in his name. I love the song. The oldest hymn we sing here, I think, is the one uh, St. Francis of Assisi wrote in roughly 1200 AD. So that's a pretty old hymn. So don't say we don't sing old hymns. We sing old hymns. That's about as old as you're going to get. It's called All Creatures of Our God and King. And my favorite line out of that, every time I'm singing it, All the redeemed washed by His blood. Come and rejoice in His great love. Oh, praise Him, hallelujah. Christ has defeated every sin. Cast all your burdens now on Him. Sin has been defeated in Christ. The resurrection was a victory proclamation by God Himself over sin. And think of this in terms of your own battle with your remaining sin, friends. That sin is defeated. It's already defeated in Christ. Your worst besetting sin will not get the eternal best of you. Do you see that? And it will not have dominion over you. Because as Paul said, you are no longer under the law, but under grace. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ through His cross and resurrection. There's victory over sin. And friends, victory over death. Death has been conquered by Jesus Christ. Because Jesus was raised from the dead, so too we will be raised from the dead. You know, death didn't get the last word on Jesus, did it? And it won't get the last word on anyone here who's in Christ. Death doesn't get the victory. God gets the victory. Because God always wins, friends. And in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we see that death has been defeated. You know, one of the things Jesus said to Martha, and I think it's fitting, it was at the tomb of her brother Lazarus, and of course she's grieving. 
And Jesus said to her in John 11, verse 25, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And he said, do you believe this? Now let me ask that same question I asked a few minutes ago about that other point. Would you believe a man who said, hey, trust in me, I'm the resurrection and the life. And yet he was dead. And you could visit his tomb like some kind of tourist attraction. There's the tomb of Jesus and in there lies his bones. Would you put your faith in a man like that? Of course not. But a man like that who went to the cross, died, was buried, and rose again. Now can you put your faith in a man like that? He himself has conquered death. He has won the decisive victory over death. We place our faith in him. Our faith is not in some dead historic figure of the past, but in a very real, present, living Jesus. With us right now, in us right now. The resurrection of Jesus is why Christians don't view or fear death the way the rest of the world does. It's why true Christian funerals take on a different flavor than non-Christian funerals. Because in the resurrection of Christ, we understand that death has been defeated. It doesn't get the last word. We understand that this person, yes, though their body has died, yet their soul is in the presence of the Lord and one day Jesus himself will command their body to be raised from the dead and be reunited to their soul. We don't view death the way the world does. Jesus defeated death not only for himself but also for us. You know, Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, he said, Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. And I've thought about this. We often use this in terms of um, the discipline of apologetics, like learning how to, I don't know, debate skeptics, right? And I, I suppose that has its place. But ultimately, in the context, this was to Christians who are suffering, and Peter's saying to them, as you're suffering, people are going to see in you a hope they don't have. Hope in Bible, by the way, is always a confident expectation of future good. It's not wishful thinking. It's this is going to happen because God said it's going to happen, right? And they're going to see this hope in you. So you apply that to a Christian who is walking through the valley of the shadow of death. Think about that of Christians who go to that doctor and they get that diagnosis. This is it. This is going to take your physical life. Well, that's a horrible kind of suffering. It's the valley of the shadow of death. But the response from Christians in those kinds of moments, I think, are, is critical. That throughout time and maybe, and, and, and I'm sure with people facing that there is, there are times of breaking down and failure and things. I'm, I'm, I'm assuming that to be the case in anyone that would walk through it, including myself when it comes time. But, but yet through it all, there's this persevering hope and faith 
and trust and calmness and peace that God is giving and a joy that doesn't make sense. And the surrounding people are saying, wait a minute, you got to tell me what's going on here. You're walking through the valley of the shadow of death and yet you fear no evil. What is happening here? Peter says, now, be ready in that moment to make a defense for the reason you have this hope. And the reason you have that hope, friends, is Jesus Christ, the one who died and more than that, was raised again. It's a very living and real hope in Christ and a very real living Savior. The world is watching Christians even in a culture now so afraid, so afraid of death. Our culture finally got struck with something it can't control. And no matter what a president gets up there and says behind a podium, I'll beat this, I'll defeat this, no, you can't. You're as helpless and hopeless as any one of us. That's why everybody's scared. But the Christian now, because Christ has defeated death and it doesn't get the last word. If the worst case scenario happens from our human perspective and it takes your life, it doesn't even really take your life, said Jesus. That even those who die, yet they live and whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. I mean, you'll face physical death, but not your soul will never taste death. Christ has defeated death on the cross. There's nothing awaiting us but power or uh, victory, resurrection victory. So think of the word victory and then think of this, Christian, resurrection power. And this is really important. So follow my train of thinking here. What you see in the resurrection accounts is power at work. God's life-giving power at work. Remember, you leave off in chapter 27 and the condition of Jesus is this. He's dead He's as dead as any dead person has ever been. This was a real death. And he was really buried and he was really dead. Okay, In him was no life. In chapter 28 though, he's alive and well. And better than ever, we could say. So what happened between chapters 27 and 28? God's life Giving power happened. He was raised from the dead by the power of God, the only one with the power to bring dead people to life. And do you know what's so cool? The Bible wants you to know that that same power, that same life-giving resurrection power that God worked in Christ in the resurrection, is the same life-giving power He works in you and me. No distinction. Let's kind of close the service with me showing you that in Ephesians chapter 1. Find Ephesians 1. Look at how Paul draws this out. That's on page 1241 if you are using one of our Bibles. Ephesians chapter 1. In verse 15, Paul begins to describe the contents of his prayers for the Ephesian church. 
And he says in verse 15, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Now let's just pause right there. Basically what he's praying is that God would help them spiritually or by a spirit's power in their hearts with their eyes of faith be able to comprehend some things and i was actually praying that for everyone here this morning including myself that when when we see spiritual truths from the bible that god would help us comprehend it because it's life changing that's what changes things not that we just read about the resurrection of christ say that's a nice uh, a story, but that we really comprehend what God wants us to see in it. Okay, so that's what he's praying. He's praying, verse 18, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and catch this, verse 19, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might, verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. He wants you to know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. The same power that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead is the same power he has and is working in you, Christian. Do you see that on the, on the text? This is what I think what Paul is doing is as he's praying for God to show Jesus' people the truth of the power at work within them, that it would ch- things would change for them. Their lives would become powerful beyond their abilities. Their lives would become new, you see. And if you look at chapter 2, verse 1, you were dead in the trespasses and sins. So think of Matthew 27 and Jesus dead and in Joseph's tomb there, that body laying there, lifeless and dead. And Paul says, spiritually speaking, that was your condition. You were in the tomb. This is how you were born into this world. This is how you've been living. You were walking, following the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, and in Matthew 27, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You see the connection there? Paul is saying, I want them to know that the same power you worked in Christ is the power you worked in them. They've even experienced it right now in their lives. They went from spiritual death in sin and slavery to sin. They went from spiritual death to life by your gracious power at work within them. You are the recipient, friends, of resurrection power within you that is at your disposal to live according to. One of the biggest 
lies the devil pitches to Christians is that they're too weak to overcome sin and temptation. Or they're too weak to serve the Lord. Or that they're, they're too weak to be a faithful witness. And apart from Christ, that would all be true. The Bible's very clear in and of itself. Jesus said, with part from me, you can do nothing. But we're not apart from Christ. We're united to Christ, not just in His death for the forgiveness of our sins, but in His life-giving, powerful resurrection. So that we can, well, as Paul says it, Romans chapter 6, he says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Do you realize we're supposed to live our lives now according to resurrection power that comes from God? It's newness of life. That's what happens to somebody when they come to true faith in Christ. And Paul has to keep reminding us of this because we have that weak, fallen flesh. And sometimes it gets cloudy and it gets confusing. And so over and over we need to be reminded of the power at our disposal. Which is why he'll pray again in Ephesians 3, verse 20 to 21, and he'll say, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, According to the what? The power at work within us. Ask what you will of God. Do you want to be a more powerful witness? Ask that of God. You can't even imagine what He's able to do in you. That's what Paul is saying. Don't diminish the power of God. Do you want to conquer, overcome a sin in your life? A besetting sin. Don't think that sin gets victory over you. You have the power of God at your disposal now. As a church, we understand that we are given the commission to fulfill Christ's commission to make disciples. And we say that's an overwhelming task. Well, yes, it would be in and of ourselves, but not with the power of God at work within us. He's able to do far more abundantly than all we could ever ask or think or dream or vision, maybe I'm the pastor of vision here, I don't know now, that, that's the title I see going around. Well, you vision it, he's able to do far more abundantly beyond what you ask or think according to the power at work within us, which means as Christians, we've got to learn to trust in him and his power. Or as Paul will say in Ephesians 6, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Don't look to your own. It's the resource that God has given us for godly living evangelism, witness, sin-defeating. He has not left us. Just as He said, I will never leave you or forsake you. He hasn't. I will be with you always through my Spirit and I will give you the power to, to, to do what I have called you to do. There is resurrection power, friends, at our disposal. I think what we'll do is we'll end it there and we'll pick up next week with the with the uh, resurrection responsibility of the Great Commission. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for what we see in Scripture. We thank you for the gift of faith and our seeing Jesus as our Savior who is alive. I ask that maybe we would feel His presence now with us in unique ways.
Lord, there are people in here who need to be strengthened with the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And there are people in here who are struggling with sin that feels daunting. Lord, I pray that we would we would understand the power at work within us even now and even as we turn to the Lord's table, remember his death. And remember that the death was not the end of it, that he rose again for us so our eyes of faith would be on him. We ask this in his name. Amen.